All right. So, first of all, we will review our catechism questions, and then we will get into our lesson for today. So, here we go. Question 12. What is the work of creation? The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. All right. And then our second one for this 10-week session, question 13. How did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image and knowledge, righteousness and holiness with dominion over the creatures. Okay, and we're going to take each one of these phrases and making a whole lesson out of it. And just to rehash, we gave a couple of weeks of intro to creation, and then we considered God creating all things ex nihilo or of nothing. Last week, we considered God creating things of nothing by the word of his power. We did a deep dive into what that meant by the word of his power. And then today, we're going to this second underline, or this uh, third underlined portion here, the space of six days. So here we go on this one. And so most of you know, for those of you who don't, uh, I work at an academic medical center. I'm a professor at UMMC. And if you want to spring up a conversation, uh, maybe a contentious conversation, or maybe even potentially trigger a few people at an academic medical center, you can just casually bring up that you are a creationist. Okay? And if you want to make it even more interesting, uh, really interesting, you can tell them that you're a young earth creationist and that that's going to spur on a conversation, I promise you. Uh, that's only happened to me like once. I don't like go around announcing this right to everyone that I meet. But um, I don't avoid it if it happens to come up in conversation either. And it's happened once or twice. And so it's always a lively discussion after that, at least. Um, never violent or con- really contentious or anything like that. But it, it does, it, it can become a discussion. We'll just leave it at that. And so today, like it's underlined right here, today's lesson is on God creating the world in six days. And obviously this is a huge subject. It's a huge subject for our time has been for 100, 200 plus years. Um, and so we can't really cover exhaustively in a single Sunday school lesson everything this means and every defense of the argument that God has made the world in six days. Um, I don't even know that we could really exhaustively cover it in a whole Sunday school series about this. And so we've only got 30, 40 minutes this morning. And so we're not going to try to answer every question that you might have. I, I will save a little bit of time for discussion at the end. I think we will have enough time for that. But, we're, you know, obviously we, we just can't cover every scenario of objections that the world might have to this or objections that you might have to it or I might have to it or, or things that, that don't exactly square away. So we just, we just can't do it. Um, we could spend a lot of time on geological things. We could spend a lot of time on paleontological questions or questions about astronomy or questions about physics. Uh, we really could do this, and I would hopefully be prepared to answer any of those things. I might do a poor job, honestly, but uh, I would do my best. But instead, I would point you all to Answers in Genesis. I'm sure all of you know Answers in Genesis. They're a great, great ministry, and I've, they've helped me a whole lot in answering a lot of things. Um, so just just go there if you've got specific questions about specific scientific details or 
how things fit together or really big objections that the world and quote-unquote science may have to this literal six days of creation, I'd just point you to Answers in Genesis because they're a fantastic resource, an incredible resource in defense of our views. Um, Also, there's a very good section, I didn't bring it with me, a 10-page section of something that I've referenced in this series before in Herman Bovink's Reform Dogmatics that is really helpful on this subject. He's, He's actually, he thinks through these things very well. Um, he's very gracious in dealing with this, actually. Um, even back when he wrote this in the 19th century, when a lot of these ideas are really, you know, hot topics of the day. And so uh, Bob Inc. Is, is really good on this. I could, I could point you to that if you're interested in, in reading it. There's this, like I said, really good 10-page section on this where he discusses a lot of the things that we're talking about today. And so we're going to talk about some of those things but not cover everything. And so, first of all, we're obviously we're going to just wholesale, completely disregard any sort of atheistic worldview, right? This is a Sunday school class. So we're just going to completely disregard any sort of atheistic worldview of creation without a God at all. And we really covered why that doesn't make sense at all whenever we, we covered God making all things of nothing, because you, every religion, including atheism, has to answer the question, why is there something rather than nothing? And only Christianity answers that in a satisfying way. So we already covered that, kind of. Not going to discuss that, so we're not going to cover any sort of atheistic worldviews of of, uh, creation without a God at all. And we could, like I said, also talk about the various problems with theistic evolution and their interpretations of Genesis 1. And, and here I'll make a, a brief confession because I, I really did flirt with the ideas of theistic evolution about about 10 years ago. Um, I researched a lot about it, and so I was kind of struggling through some of the things. And I'll be completely honest, uh, billions of years and evolution actually really didn't make a whole lot of sense to me then. And in some sense, they still make a whole lot of sense to me now, um, especially if you consider them as some sort of manifestation of God's providence in that way. But... I ultimately had to reject them. I still have to reject the ideas of theistic evolution for one reason and one reason only, and that is because Scripture's testimony really is against it. And that's ultimately the conclusion I had to come to. You know, every, the more I looked at it, the more I looked into it, I said, Scripture does not support this. Scripture does not support this. And so if Scripture's testimony is against it, and that's the basis of all my knowledge, or the foundation of all my knowledge, I have to go with Scripture, right? And so we could, we could spend a lot of time dispelling the, the various uh, theistic evolution frameworks, the multiple frameworks that theistic evolutionists try to fit things into. First of all being a mythical interpretation of Genesis 1. The Hebrew doesn't support this as a mythical interpretation. The, the, the framework of the Hebrew does not, it, it doesn't fit any other type of Hebrew poetry. So it's not like poetry. It's not Hebrew mythology or anything like that. Um, another one is the day-age theory, which the Hebrew word yom doesn't really support the day-age theory. Um, and then the day-age theory also brings in a lot of other hermeneutical issues with the rest of Scripture. So um, we could, could go into that, not going to. We could go into the gap theory, which is another theistic evolution theory, um, whereas you know, God is just filling in gaps here where there's billions of years Billions of years in uh, the gaps 
But there's also a lot of hermeneutical issues with this and God's providence. So there's just a lot of problems with a lot of the theistic evolution frameworks. And ultimately, Scripture doesn't really support them. Ah, that's a good question. You should, you should know that. <laughs> uh, interpretation. Interpretation of Scripture. So uh, the first rule being you should use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so, good question. Thank you. <laughs> um, so we could, we could go into all of the different theistic evolution frameworks and the problems that are with them, but we don't really have time for that either. <laughs> And so we could also go on discussing solutions to, to various apparent issues with our views, dinosaurs, geological records, a lot of which are solved by a consideration of a worldwide flood. That's another thing that pe- these people just wholesale disregard, really. They, don't, they, they won't even allow for a worldwide flood. And a lot of the geological issues and some of the issues with dinosaurs are solved if you consider a worldwide flood, which we do. Um, the worldwide flood is, is, is core, core doctrine of Christianity, so we have to, have to take that. Um, also, you know, we could, we could discuss solutions to the starlight problem, which are solved by separate astrophysical models. And then also, a lot of the problems, quote-unquote problems, can be solved by simply considering that God, who is the author of creation and who is also all-powerful, can intervene into the natural world and produce natural miracles. Right? The, the rest of the testimony of Scripture, when you look past Genesis 1, when you look past the Noahic flood, you see that there are natural miracles everywhere throughout the Bible. Right? Um, they're concentrated in a lot of places. They're concentrated with Moses and Aaron and then with Elijah and Elisha and then with Jesus and the New Testament uh, coming into play and the apostles there. So there's concentrations here of miracles, but there's plenty of natural miracles in the Bible. And so when you consider God as author of creation and also omnipotent, um, the one that created the world, he can also intervene in the natural world and produce miracles. And the Bible's testimony to all this, some of these miracles, uh, you could argue all of them, but definitely some of them are, act- are completely non-negotiable for, for Orthodox believers. The two main being that just off the top of my head are the virgin birth, right? Virgins don't get pregnant. That's a natural miracle. So that one's non-negotiable for Christians. And the other one is the resurrection, right? That one is completely non-negotiable for Christians. And dead men just don't rise. That's not natural. That is a pure miracle. And so God as being the author of creation, being all-powerful, can make dead men rise and can make virgins become pregnant. So we have to consider those things. You have to believe them in order to claim to be a Christian. And so, we're not going to spend our time here. We also could bring up various problems with just the evolutionist framework, which things being like random organization of matter from the beginning, that, you know, that, that the probabilities are so low, so low, of just random organization causing everything that we see. Or even causing the first things that happen and then everything else happening after that. Probabilities are just too low. There's also problems with habitable planets, right? Why is it only Earth that we know of in all of the universe that is a habitable planet? That's, that's a question that's unanswered for the evolutionists. 
Um, also, things like the Cambrian explosion, that's something they cannot explain, where even in their framework, they have this explosion of, of different varieties of animal and plant life that just cannot be accounted for in an evolutionist framework. So we could talk about all that. And we could, but I'm not going to for the sake of time and for the sake of everything else that I've already mentioned. But I did want to bring up two very fatal problems with theistic evolution. And these are ultimately the things that led me to say, no, I just, I, I cannot accept it. I cannot even look into it anymore because these are, these are the two real fatal problems with theistic evolution, in my opinion. Two of them are the, the problem of death and then the necessity of a historical atom. Okay, so those are two things that are really fatal to any theistic evolution framework. It's the problem of death and the necessity of a historical atom as testimony to the rest of the Bible, really. And so, uh, like I said, the, the defining event for Christianity and something that you absolutely have to believe in if you're going to call yourself a Christian is the resurrection of Jesus. Right? That is the defining event of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus. And so then, what did Jesus' resurrection give victory over? Jesus' resurrection gave victory over a couple of things, actually. It gave victory over Satan, gave victory over sin, and it gave victory over death. Satan, sin, and death. And all three of these are related to the fall, right? So Satan comes in, deceives Eve, she gives the fruit to Adam. This, in turn, brings sin in, and with the sin comes death, right? All three are related to the fall, so the fall is very foundational to Christianity, too. If the resurrection is our centering event for Christianity, if it's the defining event for Christianity, as testified by Jesus and the apostles and Paul and everyone else in church history, is all about the resurrection. If the resurrection is going to give victory over Satan, sin, and death, and the testimony of Scripture says that Satan, sin, and death are all three primary components of the fall. We probably have to believe in the fall, too. Okay. Also, you get that great proto-evangelium in Genesis 3.15 where God promises that a seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head of Satan. Right? It's pointing to the resurrection of Jesus. And so, that's... Dirk, what's the proto-evangelium? That's what I just said, yeah. Genesis 3.15 to where... What does it mean? What does it mean? Uh, the, the, before the, the good news? <laughs> first gospel. Yeah, the first gospel, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the actual, the actual definition of the word. The first gospel there in Genesis 3.15. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Dirk, for keeping me, on, keeping me honest up here, man. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You're right, you're right. Um, and so since... The resurrection is the most important event in Christianity. Like I said, as attested to by Jesus, Paul, all of Jesus' apostles, all the Christians in the book of Acts, and really every ounce of church history, we have to say the event that the resurrection gave victory over also has to be foundational to, to the religion too. Right? So if you deny the resurrection, everyone has to agree with this. If you deny the resurrection, you don't have Christianity. That's just a basic Christian fact. Okay, if you deny the resurrection, you don't have Christianity. You've got something else. Okay. And so people would disagree with this, but it seems to me also that if you also deny the fall, you don't have Christianity either. You've got some other religion too. If you deny the fall, 
It's not Christianity. It's something else. And so the Bible is clear about this, that death, death is not a reality before the fall. Death is not a reality before the fall. It wasn't a reality for humans. It's not a reality for animals either before the fall. There's no death. This is testified to in Genesis, Genesis 1, which is the debated passage. But it's also testified also in Romans. So in Romans 5.12, Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay? So death came from sin and sin came from one man. So you're starting to see the problem here. Starting to see the problem with theistic evolution. Right? Here's the problem is that well, where did all of the death of the previous billions of years come from? This was the one argument that really convinced me away from it. Where did all of the death of the billions of years come from if death came from one man and death came through sin? I don't know that I've heard a convincing answer to that. And so if it didn't come from Adam, where did it come from? And so that brings up the second problem. Also very related to the first problem is that you have to have a historical atom. You have to have a historical atom. So if, if we don't have a historical atom, then the testimony of the second atom, Jesus, doesn't make any sense at all. If you don't have a first atom, why do you need a second atom? So that's the other major, major problem of the theistic evolutionists. Where do you arbitrarily draw the line and say, if you've got billions of years and you've got hominids and you've got proto-humans, where do you draw the line and says, this, this is beast here, but here we have man. Here we have Adam. That seems very, very arbitrary and really, really hard to support in any way. Where do you cross the line from beast without soul into man with soul? And this is another very, very biblical foundation. There is a very strong foundation, foundational distinction between animal and man in the Bible, right? Because man is created in the image of God. Man has a soul. Animals were not created in the image of God. Animals do not have souls. That is one of the foundational distinctions in the Bible between beast and man, And so where do you draw the line saying this is beast right here, but this one right here, this is man? That's a big problem, big problem. And so the much simpler response, and a lot of things in my life, I like to take Occam's razor approach, right? If you've got multiple multiple explanations for something, take the simpler one. Makes your life a lot easier in a lot of cases. So the much, much simpler response and the one that makes the life of the Christian much easier, I think, is to adopt this very simple, there's a word again, hermeneutic, and this interpretation for the rest of the creation account and believe God's word in exactly the way that it's written. Make your life much easier, it's much simpler, and it makes the rest of the Bible completely make sense. And so the rest of the time, 
we're going to look at the scriptural support for literal six-day creation. So I've kind of gave, given some, some counter-arguments for theistic evolution. But the rest of the time, we're going to go the opposite. We're going to go the positive approach, and we're going to look at the scriptural support for six-day creation. Um, obviously, the first place you want to start is Genesis 1, and we're not going to read all of Genesis 1, but if just a pure, basic, slate-free reading of this without any sort of agenda, it, it's really... I don't really think there's any other way that you can read it if you're coming in just blank slate and going to believe God's word for what it says. Because you get a lot of patterns here. There's a lot of patterns that go. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Okay, God. We already talked about God creating things from nothing. God booming things into existence by the voice of his power. So we're good there. And now... Literal six days. It's because if you go to Genesis 1 and you start in there at the end of verse 5, it says in the evening and there was and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then you skip down to verse 8 at the end of that one. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And then verse 13, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And then verse 19, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Verse 23, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And then, where are we at now? Verse 31, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So you get this very repetitive pattern here, and it seems pretty clear what God's trying to communicate here. There was evening, there was morning. So even if you go with the various different uh, interpretations for the Hebrew word yom, for day, that's in here, but the pattern that is accompanied with it, that's not in the rest of the places in the Old Testament where the word yom comes in. You don't see this pattern in those where it says there was evening and there was morning. There was evening and there was morning. So God is creating a pattern here of six days where he's doing all this creating. And then he goes on, obviously, and rests in the seventh day. And so the history of Israel is going to go after this, and they're going to look to all the writings of Moses, which is included here, they're going to take all of them completely at face value and believe them for what they say they are. Okay, God creating the world in six days, the flood coming in, all of the other writings of Moses, the history of Israel is going to support this and they're going to testify to this that all the writings of Moses are true and exactly how they're stated. And so that's the first, first bit of scriptural support there. And so the rest of the Old Testament, like I said, is going to testify to this because they believe Moses' writings. But then there's also New Testament support too. You've got Jesus' genealogy in Luke 3. It starts off like this. It starts off saying Jesus being the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, so on and so forth, so on and so forth. And then it comes to the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Okay. So we've got the New Testament in Luke 3 testifying that Adam is a literal, historical person. And if he's not, we go back to those problems we just talked about. So Adam's a literal, historical person, Jesus being one of his sons, being the second Adam. Okay. So Adam is the son of God, as denoted here by God's first made man. Okay. And then also, more New Testament support, Jesus assumes the early events in Genesis. He doesn't name Adam specifically, but he assumes that the early events of Genesis are true. And I hope we can believe the testimony of Jesus himself, right? So in Matthew 19, 4, 
in Matthew 19, 4, where Jesus says, remember the Pharisees are coming up to him and they're trying to trick him, asking a question about divorce. And Jesus answers them and says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So Jesus assumes the creation narrative is exactly as it says it is right now. When Jesus says, in the beginning, God created them male and female. Okay? It didn't arise from some protoplasm that turned into some fish, that turned into some other amphibian, that turned into some mammal, that turned into some monkey, that turned into some proto-man. But in the beginning, God created man, male and female. Okay. Then also, again, over in Luke 11, Jesus assumes the creation narrative exactly how it is written. In Luke 11, verses 50 and 51, So it says, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. So he's making a pronouncement against the Pharisees, how they've killed all the prophets of old, starting with Abel. And he he connects the, the murder of the murder of Abel where Cain, his brother, slew him to being really the first prophet that was killed by someone wicked. And also, you see Jesus here assuming that the creation narrative exactly how it is written with Cain murdering Abel is true. So I would say that Jesus believed it. We should probably also believe it too. So he also, Jesus believed in other historical miraculous events from the Old Testament. He testifies to these. These are just two examples. He mentions Noah and the flood later on. He mentions Moses and the serpent in the wilderness. He mentions the miraculous manna from heaven. He mentions Lot and his wife. He mentions all the, some of the miracles of Elijah. And he also talks about Jonah being swallowed by a great fish and being spit out three days later on land. Obviously, these are all miracles of the Old Testament. Jesus says them when he's talking to people in a way that clearly communicates that he believed that they were true. So if he's going to believe in all these miracles also, he can obviously believe in the miracle of creation. So... He says these things not as allegorical events, but actual historical events. Jesus believes these things, so we should believe them too. All right. There's also other support from the New Testament. So I'm going to enlist some help here. If someone wants to go to Romans 5, uh, two other people can go to 1 Corinthians 15. Someone can go to 1 Timothy 2, and then someone can also go to Jude. All right. If someone is at Romans 5, will you read verses 12 through 14? We already read this first verse, but we'll read it again. 12 through 14. Anybody? Therefore, this is saying, in the world, one man, and death for sin, and so death spread to all men with all sin. For sin indeed was in the world, before the law was given, but sin is not counted, for there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam and Moses, even over those sins, was not <coughs> like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. There we go. So Paul obviously believes it here when he's writing um, death in Adam and life in Christ. He believed that Adam was an actual person. So if Adam's not an actual person, 
then we've got all the problems we've talked about. And if, even if Adam is an actual person, but he evolved over billions of years, we've got a lot of problems that we talked about too. So Paul believes it there. All right, if someone's in 1 Corinthians 15, if someone will read 20 through 22. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. There you go. In Adam all die, also in Christ all shall be made alive. This is the same point Paul is making back in Romans, making it again to the Corinthians. He obviously believes Adam is a historical figure here. Also in 1 Corinthians 15, if someone else is there, we read 44 and 45. It is soul and natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. There you go. Paul relating Jesus as the last Adam or the second Adam back to the first Adam. And thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Paul clearly believes here that Adam was an actual historical person. All right, one more from Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So somebody's in 1 Timothy 2. Will you read 13 and 14? For Adam was born first in Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was There we go. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived. Paul briefly explaining the fall right there, once again showing that he believed that Adam was a historical person. Okay, so it's not just Jesus and Paul that name Adam specifically. There's also Jude, who we don't really know a whole lot about, but we do know that he wrote a brief epistle. So if someone's in Jude, will you read verse 14 of Jude? Right. So Jude is not obviously not arguing the point right here that Adam and Enoch are historical people, but he assumes that to be a fact. Right. So if Adam and Enoch are historical people, then the way that Genesis is written can be taken at face value. So you see the testimony of of three in the New Testament right here, not the least of which being Jesus himself, that Adam is indeed a historical person. So if he's not, got a lot of problems. And if Adam evolved from billions of years, we've also got a lot of problems. So it's much simpler just to believe God's word exactly the way it is written in Genesis 1. And then I wanted to go back to one more piece of evidence here, and I'll read this one. This is from the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, which is the foundation of all of our moral law as Christians, so I hope we would all agree with that. I hope other Christians would agree with us too. This is our foundational moral law, the Ten Commandments, starting at verse 1. And God spoke all these words. So God, this is also connecting it back, the Ten Commandments, back to the creation account, right? Where God is speaking things into existence. He's not speaking the moral law into existence here because that's been on man's heart from the beginning. But he does speak all these words audibly where everyone in the assembly can hear these Ten Commandments. He speaks them, and then down in verses 8 through 11, when he's explaining the importance of the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner that is within your gates. And here's the key for us. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So one of the foundational moral laws is premised upon the fact that God created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh day. So it's much simpler just to believe God exactly the way that he has written it and not try to create a bunch of loops to merge the Bible and science. So first of all, I hope this, is, this has been helpful to strengthen your convictions this morning that God is, is trustworthy and does not lead his people into darkness but life. And I'll state that God is not against science. Um, for an etymological reason that the very root of the, the word is the Latin word scientia, which literally means knowledge. So the one who is all knowledge or all knowing or omniscient isn't opposed to knowledge, but he is the foundation for it. He is the foundation for all reality because he created this reality. And so he has told us that he created the universe and he created this world and he created all that is in it in six little days and it is much simpler to just believe him for what he said. And so I'm going to close with a psalm like I did, like I've been doing the previous one. So I'm going to close today with Psalm 90. Psalm 90 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, or you had ever formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight, or but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with the flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands.